So, was the Wild West wild? Today we've been joined by actor Danny Mahoney for reasons that will become completely obvious. Danny, you're very welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here. Let us tell you a story. It matters because it gets to the heart of who Americans think they are. In the spring of 1871, Charlie Hester rode into Abilene, Kansas. He tramped up the Chisholm Trail from Texas with 250 head of cattle and a gang of eight other cowboys. It was weeks since they had a shave or a drink. Charlie was 18. I'd heard about Abilene, 600 feet down to water and six inches down to hell. With pay in our pockets and pockets in our pants, we whistled in the dog and gave the whole works a rousing dam. Some of the boys proceeded to paint the town red, while others decided it should go prohibition and attempted to drink it dry. By the evening, the gang were busted. Home and mother's mince pie was uppermost in our minds as each solemnly vowed, never again, so help me calamity Jane. <laughs> the last Abilene Marshal, Tom Bear River Smith, had just been gunned down, murdered by the outlaws, cattle rustlers, and common variety of Texas punchers. A new marshal had just ridden into town, James Butler Wild Bill Hickok. He shot first and talked afterwards, and he took every opportunity to feather his own nest. While he was in Abilene, Charlie Hester realised with a shock that he'd recognised a wanted killer. John Wesley Hardin was up from Texas under a false name, but Charlie kept his mouth shut. If one made an accusing remark that was not backed up with a six-gun, he was very apt to read his own obituary next morning while he cooled his heels awaiting admittance to the lower regions. Even while Bill Hickok couldn't prevent Hardin shooting a man in one of the town hotels, Hardin got away, Charlie remembered, by climbing through an upstairs window... Like a turpentine cat. <laughs> Welcome to the Wild West. Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Between 1781 and 1853, the American federal government acquired 1.5 billion acres of public land west of the original 13 American colonies, which had stretched up the East Coast from Georgia to New England. They then proceeded to harass and exterminate the Native American peoples who roamed the lands further on, especially in the Great Plains, and lay claim to millions of acres more. Now we should just pause here a moment. The ethnic cleansing of the Native American lands is too big and too important a subject for us to talk about just as part of this discussion. It's something for another time. Let's simply state that the genocide, the shameless double-dealing, the wanton destruction of wildlife and landscape, the suppression of literally hundreds of distinct cultures, languages and ways of living is a crime against humanity that wasn't quite on the scale of British slavery, which we'll talk about in another series of the History Cafe, but equal in its moral bankruptcy. It should not be forgotten. The shallow caricature of the savage Indian has no place in our account. Read Angie Debo's classic History of the Indians of the United States if you read nothing else. 
So let's go back to the Wild West. A series of land grabs and cruel clearances by the federal government from 1781 triggered a crazy, barely contained movement west, spearheaded by gold prospectors, cattle ranchers, homesteaders, and above all, in an explosion of corruption that made the fortunes of dozens in the Republican Party, the railroads. At times, this shifting frontier was literally lawless because it was beyond the reach of any formal authority. It created a world of images and convictions that really did make America what it is today. It created the Wild West. Or should we say it created the myth of the Wild West? Now that's important. If this is a myth, it needs calling out. Let's start with Donald Trump. In his last State of the Nation address in February 2020, Trump announced to Congress that America has always been a frontier nation, carved out by the toughest, strongest, fiercest and most determined men and women ever to walk on the face of the earth. In May 2020, Trump approvingly promoted a video by the founder of Cowboys for Trump, in which he claims the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat. After January 2021's armed attack on the Capitol, and the hunt for Democrat Speaker Nancy Pelosi, that should send a chill through you. The National Rifle Association spent more than $30 million on Trump's run for office in 2016. No coincidence, then, that as the pandemic swept across America, Trump ordered that gun stores stayed open. They were, he said, critical infrastructure. Trump made it easier to buy a gun than to vote. 17 million guns sold in 2020. It was a record year. There are more guns in America than there are people. Not surprisingly, 2020 saw a corresponding surge in daily gun violence that contributed to an estimated 4,000 additional murders. And that's a conservative figure. Almost 75 million Americans voted for Trump in 2020. So the whole idea that Americans were somehow born with a six-shooter in their hands is a story we have to get to the bottom of. So just where and when did the notion of the Wild West come from? Well, let's start in 1892. That year, a Wisconsin historian, Frederick Jackson Turner, read a very famous paper to the American Historical Association in Chicago. It was entitled The Frontier in American History. This expansion westward, he declared, with its new opportunities, its continuous touch with the simplicity of primitive society, furnishes the forces dominating American character. Now that's a big statement to make. Turner, who was a serious historian, was saying that the American character was forged on the frontier. Turner's essay came at a psychologically important moment. Just two years earlier, in 1890, the US Census Bureau had declared the frontier officially closed. There was, it said, no more empty land. It wasn't true. Homesteaders actually went on claiming their tiny footholds into the 1980s. But Turner's paper has had an enormous impact, well beyond the dry and dusty subscribers to the American Historical Association. Over a couple of generations, he argued, the Americans had become what he called a composite nationality. Exposed to the harshest conditions in this extraordinary push westward, they'd abandoned their soft European way of life and acquired the toughness they needed to survive. They picked it up not least from the skills that the Native Americans taught them. What had been created in this extraordinary harsh and heady moment was a people, he said, of individualism, democracy and nationalism. The Western frontier, said Turner, 
was what had made Americans great. And many Americans, uh, in particular Donald Trump, it seems, still believe him. Now we'll come back to Frederick Jackson Turner later. But the point here is that he didn't make all this up. Plenty of people had been saying that it was gun-toting cowboys who'd opened up the frontier, who'd made America what it was. Novels about the Wild West date back as far as the five leather-stocking books of James Fenimore Cooper, who between 1823 and 1841 wrote The Last of the Mohicans, The Deerslayer and other classics. For those who don't know, leather-stocking, or Natty Bumpo, to give him his proper fictional name, was a fictional frontiersman, partly raised by Native Americans. The Deerslayer was their name for him. This is all mad. I think I'd rather be called the Deer Slayer than Natty Bumpo. Why? <laughs> Did you know that in 1989 there was a series of stamps issued to commemorate Natty, Leatherstocking and Bumpo, but they weren't issued in the States, they were issued in the Soviet Union. It looks like the Americans aren't the only ones who admire tough guys. That's why Putin keeps having to, <laughs> keeps having to take right. his shirt off. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> but back to the American range... 20 years after the Leatherstocking novels, Erastus and Irwin Beadle published the first so-called dime novel. It had been written, in fact, by Mrs Anne Stevens, of course, another woman written out of history, and it was about the Native American wife, fictional, of a European hunter. By 1865, the Beadle brothers had published five million copies of their dime novels and a vast, mass-produced, mass-consumed, money-spinning operation had been born. Authors were known to churn out 25,000 words a week and sell 70,000 or more copies. Actually, most respected authors do well to write 7,000 a week and sell 1,000 <laughs> <Right>. copies. <laughs> ah, but this was Mills and Boone with guns. And the Wild West was what sold. By the 1880s, Cowboy characters like the perhaps unfortunately named Deadwood Dick had become the stock-in-trade of the dime novel. Mark Twain's books from the 1870s and 1880s were supposedly based on real events. At the age of 26, he boarded a stagecoach for Nevada and California to go prospecting for silver or gold. The first 26 graves in the Virginia Cemetery were occupied by murdered men. So everybody said, so everybody believed, and so they will always say and believe. The reason why there was so much slaughtering done was that in a new mining district, the rough element predominates, and a person is not respected until he has killed his man. That was the very expression used. If an unknown individual arrived, they did not inquire if he was capable, honest, industrious, but had he killed his man. The best-known names in the territory of Nevada were those belonging to these long-tailed heroes of the revolver. Pockmarked Jake, Eldorado Johnny, Jack McNabb, Joe McGee, Six-Fingered Pete, etc., etc. There was a long list of them. They killed each other on slight provocation and hoped and expected to be killed themselves, for they held it almost shame to die otherwise than with their boots on, as they expressed it. In 1935, Ernest Hemingway wrote, All modern American literature comes from Twain's novel of shootouts and scrapes, Huckleberry Finn. What? Ernest Hemingway? Oh, he's your hero. <laughs> so even before William Turner was solemnly informing the American Historical Society that the frontier had forged the American composite nationality, the myth of the Wild West had been turned into an absolute goldmine.
At the end of the 18th and through the first half of the 19th centuries, American federal authorities purchased, opened and ethnically cleansed millions of acres in the heartlands of what is now the United States of America. The result was not only a scramble for the land, the gold, the buffalo skins and whatever else could be grabbed and pocketed, but also the sudden and hugely profitable appearance of the Wild West. It was a fantastic tissue of stereotypes and stories about lone American heroes who ruled with their guns. All the clichés were already there. The saloon brawl, the shootout in the deserted street, and above all, the lone rider who drifts in to save the frightened townspeople from the outlaws and then just vanishes as he comes into the sunset. At one time, an author of Western fiction called Louis L'Amour, who regarded himself as a cut above the trashy dime novels, had 100 million copies of his books in print at one time. What's striking is that many of the characters, at least in these various fictions, were in fact real. Deadwood Dick was originally a fiction, but his name was later adopted by an African-American cowboy called Nat Love, who'd become a celebrity on the rodeo circuit. You can see a picture of him on our website. Calamity Jane was in fact Martha Jane Cannery. She'd been orphaned at 14 and brought up her five younger siblings in frontier Wyoming. Later, she befriended the soldier, scout and gambler James Butler Wild Bill Hickok, remember the corrupt marshal who was bringing some kind of law and order to Abilene when Charlie Hester had ridden in. It was the dime novels that turned Jane Cannery into the whip-cracking, pistol-shooting Calamity Jane who rode shotgun messenger on a stagecoach. But Calamity Jane and Wild Bill Hickok didn't only show up in the dime novels. They played themselves in live stage shows that were created by that other dime novel favourite, the ex-soldier buffalo hunter William Frederick Cody, better known to you and me as Buffalo Bill. There are pictures of all these guys on our website. The show Buffalo Bill's Wild West became an entertainment sensation in the 1880s. A phenomenon. Cody's huge company, eventually 500 entertainers, including 100 Native Americans, reenacted battles like Custer's Last Stand at Little Bighorn. Lieutenant Colonel George Custer's nemesis, Chief Sitting Bull, even took a turn in Buffalo Bill's shows himself. There were displays of horsemanship and ropemanship, there was a buffalo hunt. Then a stagecoach would burst into the arena, its occupants bristling with guns. It was pursued by a screaming posse of Indians. But the Native Americans, mostly Sioux, who incidentally were paid the same as the whites and the Mexicans, were not only there to fight, they also created an Indian village, where visitors could sample their way of life and witness their ceremonies and dances. Bill Cody's extraordinary entertainment spectacle had in fact grown out of his stage shows from the previous decade. By 1887, the latest version of the show, entitled, quote, The Drama of Civilization," travelled to London as part of Buffalo Bill's American Exhibition of Arts, Inventions, Manufactures and Resources of the United States. It extended over seven acres at Earl's Court. Within a week, it had played a command performance to Queen Victoria herself. For six months, spectators Packed in, 20,000 people paying at least a shilling, 14 shows a week. By the end, over 2 million had seen it, and they'd launched Bill Cody's operation into the showbiz stratosphere. By now, reality and fiction were impossible to tell apart. The next year, 1888, having appeared as Buffalo Bill in numerous ghost-written dime novels, Cody also adopted his fictional persona full-time. Part soldier, part scout 
part hunter, but part softly spoken socialite who went to dinner while he was in London with Oscar Wilde and Henry Irving. Buffalo Bill embodied William Turner's composite nationality. He was supposedly part European, part Native American. In fact, he seemed to be the ultimate self-made American hero. Or maybe we should say the ultimate self-invented hero. For a while, he was said to be the most recognisable celebrity on Earth. Buffalo Bill. And by the time Buffalo Bill's show wound up in 1916, the baton of fabricating this fantastic fiction of the Wild West had passed, of course, to the filmmakers. 20th Century Fox presented Buffalo Bill in Technicolor in 1944. More than 30 of Louis L'Amour's novels were made into movies between 1953 and 2001. Warner Brothers cast Doris Day as Calamity Jane in the musical of 1953. Now you could watch fine individualist democratic American patriots killing each other in Technicolor and singing. <laughs> By the start of the 20th century, fact and fiction in the Wild West had become as impossible to unscramble as who shot who at the OK Corral. And who did? No idea. <laughs> and then along came the movies. For four decades from the late 1920s, westerns were Hollywood's bankers, about one in four of every film that was made. The story barely changes. The stranger rides in from the badlands, saves the frightened townspeople from the outlaws, and either falls in love and settles down, or rides off into the sunset. Remember all that from the dime novels? <laughs> Sometimes other enigmatic outsiders are recruited to help out. Sometimes the so-called Indians are savage and sometimes innocent and noble. Sometimes the townsfolk are corrupt. But in the end, it's all about the man and his gun. Westerns became a standard on radio in the 30s, 40s and 50s and on TV in the 50s and 60s. Just in one year, 1959, there were 35 Western series on US TV. Actually, the most famous series, The Lone Ranger, which came here, had already finished airing its 221 episodes a couple of years earlier. Before that, there'd been 2,956 Lone Ranger episodes on radio with 20 million listeners. You remember all that? Hi, yo, Silver. Came to Britain much later. So we could also talk about fashion, about rodeos, about advertising, or about country and Western music. You know, it was originally called country music, oh, but then in the 1930s it abandoned its original hick hillbilly image for a cowboy one. It was, of course, much more commercially profitable. Anyway, the point is already obvious. The wildness of the Wild West has been big business for over a century and a half. It has also exercised a profound cultural influence on American life. And actually, not just American, there are a dozen or more cowboy festivals in Germany every year. And Carl May novels. Not to mention the cowboy's popularity in Japan. And Vladimir Putin's bare chest. Stop mentioning that. But the concept of the Wild West isn't simply down to dime novels, travelling shows, country and western music and the movies. Like everything else we discuss at the History Cafe, it's much more complicated than that, or to put another way, it's a much better story than that. The idea of the Wild West had an enormous boost on the 5th of July 1876. That was the day after the United States had celebrated its first centenary, the 4th of July 1876 which had included a huge world fair in Philadelphia, attended by 10 million visitors. But that day, 5th of July 1876, news broke in Philadelphia of the defeat of General Custer. 
Lieutenant General George Custer had been a dashing young cavalry commander during the American Civil War, a darling of the Union Army. He'd then been a commander in the United States' long and shameful campaigns against Native American peoples. But on the 25th of June, 1876, he'd met his match. And Sitting Bull's forces, Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, Arapaho, had wiped his army out at Greasy Grass, also known as Little Bighorn, in Montana. Now, in that year, 1876, the United States was in fact in the middle of a recession, caused in large part by the corruption of railroad construction. But after the news of what came to be known as Custer's Last Stand, right in the middle of America's centenary celebrations, the nation's fortunes suddenly seemed to be wrapped up in a violent struggle for the Western frontier. Many Americans, borrowing a phrase that had stuck from the annexation of Texas 30 years before, now came to believe that this struggle to take possession of the West was America's manifest destiny. It was somehow, in a way nobody ever really defined, meant to be that way. A dozen years later, a young Harvard graduate, a famously irascible member of the New York legislature, would begin writing what became a four-volume history of the frontier, published as The Winning of the West. His name was Theodore Roosevelt, and he'd already spent two years managing his large Dakota cattle ranch, working for a while with the cowboys and becoming an enthusiastic hunter. In fact, during one trip to Africa, he killed 296 wild animals, including rhino, lions and elephants. Before writing Winning of the West, note the title, Roosevelt had already published a series of books on his strenuous adventures hunting and ranching and he was co-founder of a club to instill manlier values into the sons of the soft eastern rich. For Roosevelt, America's nationhood was inextricable with Western conquest and race expansion. During the past three centuries, the spread of the English-speaking peoples over the world's waste spaces has been not only the most striking feature in the world's history, but also the event of all others most far-reaching in its effects and its importance. There have been many other races that at one time or another had their great periods of race expansion, as distinguished from mere conquest, but there has never been another whose expansion has been either so broad or so rapid. Roosevelt's books were full of figures in the mould of Wild Bill Hickok and Buffalo Bill. For him, the history of the frontier was like an ancient saga peopled by a super race, chivalric, lofty figures who conquered and rescued and, when necessary, exacted revenge against what he imagined to be lesser peoples. This is distinctively and intensely American stock, who were the pioneers of our people in their march westward, the vanguard of the army of fighting settlers, who with axe and rifle won their way from the Alleghenies to the Rio Grande and the Pacific. Be like these conquering heroes, he was saying to what he called the city-dwelling tenderfeet. Recover your ruder, coarser virtues and physical qualities, by which he meant the indiscriminate slaughter of wild animals and the merciless eradication of the Native Americans. This, he claimed, was to rediscover what he called Americans' Republican virtue. The Americans began their work of Western conquest at the moment when they sprang into national life. It has been their great work ever since. 
All other questions, save those of the preservation of the Union itself, and of the emancipation of the blacks, have been of subordinate importance when compared with the great question of how rapidly and how completely they were to subjugate that part of the continent lying between the eastern mountains and the Pacific. Frederick Turner, the historian who gave his famous lecture to the American Historical Association in 1892, as we discovered earlier, thought Roosevelt's four volumes were a bit slapdash. Turner was more interested in sensible, small-holding farmers. Nonetheless, he strongly approved of the, quote, courageous and virile way that Roosevelt had recounted the, quote, difficult or impossible task of discriminating between friendly and unfriendly Indians and of the forces of expansion that would have found occasion for the conquest of the wilderness even if the savages had not given occasions. Whatever their differences, Roosevelt and Turner became friends. Both were convinced that the frontier had created the American national character. Both were convinced that as new lands ran out, Americans would somehow lose their virility cooped up with nowhere to go. Corrupt capitalists and sullen proletarians would turn on each other and destroy American democracy. Roosevelt advocated a network of hunting reserves where Americans could learn to be men. He wanted America to become an imperial power, conquering the world. Whether the barbarian be on the frontier of the United States, the Afghan on the border of British India, or the Turkoman who confronts the Siberian Cossack, the result is the same. Without force, fair dealing usually amounts to nothing. Turner wanted a network of sensible farming institutes. But for both Turner and Roosevelt, the story of the heroic winning of the West had to be told and retold to save Americans from themselves. As the American sociologist Richard Slotkin sadly concludes, quotes, it is a myth we have yet to outgrow. The frontier, whether in Turner's quieter version or Roosevelt's loudly aggressive virile one, has run deep in American culture ever since. Roosevelt became Republican president in 1901 when President William McKinley was uh, shot. Roosevelt, who was camping high in the Aron... What do you say then? Adirondacks? ...came the youngest president the USA ever had. But he didn't lose any of his virile qualities. He made his cabinet go skinny dipping in the icy Potomac. And when a cowboy was refused admittance to the White House, Roosevelt told him... Next time, you just shoot through the windows. Given what happened in January 2021, that's a pretty chilling thing to say. The second youngest president was John Kennedy. Fifty years later, in 1960, Kennedy accepted the Democratic nomination to run for president. He gave his speech at the Memorial Sports Arena in Los Angeles. Turning to the West, he told the cheering crowd that Americans were at a turning point in history. The pioneers gave up their safety, their comfort, and sometimes their lives to build our new West. And we stand today on the edge of a new frontier, the frontier of unknown opportunities and perils, the frontier of unfilled hopes and unfilled threats. The new frontier is here, whether we seek it or not. I'm asking each of you to be pioneers towards that new frontier. Wouldn't be long before Republicans, Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, both true throwbacks, were recommending Western films as models for American living. More extraordinarily, in 1972, at a key moment in Cold War negotiations with China and North Vietnam, 
Nixon's rogue diplomat Henry Kissinger admitted that he'd modelled his diplomatic style on the Wild West. I've always acted alone. Americans admired that enormously. Americans admired the cowboy leading the caravan alone astride his horse. The cowboy entering a village or a city alone on his horse. He acts, that's all, aiming at the right spot at the right time. A Wild West tale, if you like. This romantic, surprising character suits me. <laughs> Historian Eugene Hollon pointed out that memories of supposedly wild western towns, notably Dodge City, continue to justify America's egregious gun laws. What the NRA, the National Rifle Association, calls, quotes, uniquely American freedoms. Don't take much to see that the protests of supposedly freedom-loving Americans against COVID precautions and the wild scenes at the Capitol in January 2021 owe altogether too much to the notion that the American way of life was conceived on a frontier. The idea somehow that it's only the meanest who make it. So, it comes as a bit of a shock to discover that so many historians claim that away from the dime novels and the movies and all the presidential bluster and Kissinger's posing, the whole Wild West thing never happened at all. Ever since at least the 1860s, Americans have loved the Wild West. Gunslinging cowboys are the bad men and the good men, and above all the individualists, the go-getting heroes who made Americans what they are. The problem is that many historians have argued it's all a myth. It never happened. What well, can this be? Let's go back to Abilene, the town in Texas, where we started riding in with Danny as young Charlie Hester that March or April of 1871 the town where we ran into the gun-toting marshal Wild Bill Hickok, hitched or not to Calamity Jane, and where the murderer, John Wesley Hardin, is climbing out of a hotel window like a turpentine cat. Now, historian Robert Dixter has taken a close look at Abilene in these years, when it was the railhead, the collection point, for transporting southern cattle to the towns up on the eastern seaboard. Dixter discovered that, in fact, nobody had been killed in Abilene in the two years before Hester turned up. The citizens of Abilene, it's true, were getting fed up with the cowboys, but that wasn't because of the murder rate. It was because their enormous herds stripped the grasslands, while having so many young cowboy lads in the town meant that the streets filled with saloons and brothels. The citizens of Abilene actually turned their backs on the cattle trade after 1871, and drovers turned elsewhere. Abilene became unremarkable once more. In fact, the cowboys went to Dodge City in Kansas, 400 miles directly north. And that's where Charlie Hester found himself on his second trail in 1878, which was in fact unusual. Very few cowpokes, as they were called, ever did more than a single trail. It was decidedly unromantic. Days in the saddle, breathing acrid dust, dangerous river crossings, and the constant fear, day and night, of cattle stampede. The good people at Dodge City attempted to run a law-abiding community, along with their saloons, brothels and dives and they succeeded in doing so in a most commendable manner, that is, most of the time. One thing they insisted on, and enforced regardless of cost, all guns had to be registered as soon as one reached town. More than one man tried to argue, only to end with a busted jaw. I was leaning against the wall of the Long Branch Saloon when an old buffalo hunter came in the door. 
He had all of his arsenal decked about his person, and the liquor he had consumed had him pie-eyed and bow-legged. He went to the bar, pulled a six-gun, and said he was going to shoot out the lights, paint the town red, and throw the marshal out on his ear. Just then, the marshal himself sauntered in. Wyatt Arp. He told him to hand over the shooting gear as everything had to be registered. The request was refused, and the buffalo hunter went for his colt with evident intention of following through his threats. Earp pulled an uppercut out of his hip pocket, as the saying goes, and cracked the buffalo hunter square in the jaw. When the fellow picked himself off the floor, he was as tame as a pet coon. Historian Robert Dixter discovered that taken together, Abilene, Dodge City and three other similar cattle ranching towns recorded only 45 homicides in the 15 years 1870 to 1885. And five of those occurred in Ellsworth, Kansas in one year, 1873, and another five in Dodge City, 1876. The rest of the time, hardly any murders at all. Well, by modern standards, it might seem a lot. 45 homicides, five towns, 15 years. But if this was supposed to be the Wild West, it looks much tamer than we've been led to believe. By way of comparison, in 1888, for example, the year of the five Jack the Ripper murders, there were over a hundred homicides in London alone. And that was just the unsolved ones. Dixter discovered, in fact, that contemporaries habitually exaggerated the body count, either for dramatic effect, just good storytelling, or perversely to attract a certain kind of hard-drinking business. Some inhabitants of Dodge City revelled in living in America's, quote, wickedest city. A reporter on Dodge City's Saturday Evening Post in 1929 reprinted old newspaper columns apparently from the late 19th century telling how Dodge City's Boot Hill Cemetery had filled up with the murdered and the renegade. Well, Dixter checked his references and discovered they'd all been made up. Two years later, the same reporter published Lawman Wyatt Earp's autobiography. It was a typical tale of Wild West courage and mayhem. Dixter established that that too was a fake. He's doing what we do, taking good stories and turning them into dull ones. Actually, turning them into much better <laughs> ones, much better ones. Tombstone, Arizona was another notorious black spot, famous for the killing of cowboys by law enforcement officers at the OK Corral on 26th of October 1881. These days we remember the OK Corral because of the 1957 movie Gunfight at the OK Corral with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas. Well, in the film there are more than a dozen killings. Historically there were in fact three deaths during 30 seconds of shooting that day and two more in the rest of that year. But that was the worst year in the town's entire history. It was only later that Tombstone cashed in on a tourist boom and marketed itself as, quotes, the town too tough to die. Tourist Info website today says... Tombstone, Arizona is a throwback to the days of the Old West. The OK Corral, where the Earps and Doc Holliday killed three members of the Clanton gang, is downtown and, of course, a historical highlight. Other points of interest are Boot Hill Graveyard. In 1872, Mark Twain, as we've said, claimed that nobody in Nevada's Virginia City, a mining town, was respected until he'd killed his man. But when tourists turned up there looking for trouble, they were disappointed. One foreign visitor reported in 1876 that he'd been expecting at least a murder before breakfast, but nothing had happened at all. Another reported that they found only, quote, the most perfect order and decorum. Nonetheless, the tourist information website today still has a photograph of two young women with rifles at the top of its homepage. 
1876, the Abilene Marshal Wild Bill Hickok was fatally shot in the back playing poker at Deadwood, South Dakota. They said that Deadwood was one of the most dangerous places in the States. But when historian Harry Anderson investigated the place, he found that Hickok was one of four men killed in 1876, but that was the worst year he could find. And that was before any proper policing had been established in the place. In Johnson County, Wyoming, a feud broke out between cattle barons and local settlers. The so-called Johnson County War from 1889 to 1893 grew into a legend. But in reality, only two people were killed. It's true that similar so-called wars in Texas were much more serious. One, the Sutton-Taylor feud, ended after 24 deaths. But although two of them were gunned down in one day, in fact by John Wesley Hardin, our turpentine cat, the feud stretched over 11 years, between 1866 and 1877. Historian Robert Dixter also points out that in this, and at least two other Texan wars, the community actually stepped in and simply halted the violence. Even the most notorious killers turn out to be less than they claimed. There are only three confirmed killings, for example, by the notorious Billy the Kid. John Wesley Hardin, the turpentine cat, said that he killed 40 or more men in his lifetime. Mark Dixter could find evidence for 15. Of course, well, <laughs> that's still a pretty shocking figure. The point is that the, all these numbers have been multiplied out of all proportion to create the myth of the Wild West, either because it's a way to make money or to sustain the fantasy of the gun-toting American hero. Historian Frank Purcell found that while Bill Hickok, the marshal in Abilene, certainly collaborated with the corruption of the town's gambling houses, and that was something Charlie Hester saw for himself. OK Corral lawman Wyatt Earp did the same, but their reputations as gun-toting law and order machines have also been overblown. While Bill Hickok shot seven, possibly eight, Wyatt Earp may have killed five, but that's only if we include all three at the OK Corral, where he was only one of several gunmen. Besides, notes Purcell, quotes, neither really brought law and order to their towns. It already existed to a large extent before they arrived on the scene. Historian Purcell calculates, in fact, that between about 1860 and 1890, at most four in a thousand enforcement officers lost their lives in the line of duty and many of those fatalities had nothing to do with criminals. Purcell also made a survey of prison populations at the time. Quotes, The dubious reputation of the West is somewhat lacking in foundation. Most citizens live peacefully and without great fear of personal attack. The cowboy's revolver, when worn, proved far more useful against snakes than rustlers. Rattlers rather than rustlers. <laughs> Another widely quoted book, is Eugene Holland's Frontier Violence Another Look. Holland describes how at noon, on Monday the 22nd of April 1889, the lands around Guthrie, Oklahoma, were opened up for settlement. There were eyewitness newspaper reports that on that day, 15,000 men crowded into town armed to the teeth. Well, fighting quickly broke out over disputed claims and accusations that some had jumped the deadline, grabbing homestead plots before anyone else had the chance. Inevitably, some were shot. But, Holland discovered, these so-called eyewitness reports were in fact filed several days before Monday the 22nd of April when the lands around Guthrie, Oklahoma were open for settlement. <laughs> 
What really happened on that day, that Monday, was that an extraordinary cry from 32 different states collected in Guthrie and succeeded in sorting out the entire land allocation with a truly astonishing lack of acrimony. Several disputes were in fact sorted just by the flip of a coin. Those few who jumped the queue and got ahead of the deadline were just peacefully ejected by the majority. And on Tuesday, the assembled settlers elected a mayor, a council, adopted a city charter and authorised the collection of the first tax. By Sunday, Baptists, Methodists and Presbyterians were already holding church services in tents. It would be six months before the region recorded its first homicide. Holland goes on to report that stagecoach hold-ups were actually very rare and tolerance towards Jews and blacks, if not towards Chinese or Japanese, was much greater on the frontier than elsewhere in the States. He quotes one Texan who found not a single locked door in any store or office in 1880s Colorado City. In hot weather, in fact, many didn't even bother to close the door. Another commentator quoted by Holland wrote of the supposedly notorious goldfields in 1885, There is more real honesty and fairness among the miners than any other class of people. Taken as a body, they are a plain, straightforward, hard-working set of men who attend their own business without meddling in the affairs of others. And I have found as guileless hearts amongst them as ever throbbed in mortal bosom. And as for Dodge City, famous for the bitter animosity between its cattlemen and settlers, when the wheat crop failed in 1879, the town's women organised a benevolent society to help. By the end of the year, reports Holland, the town fathers had bought and distributed seven and a half thousand pounds of cornmeal and similar mountains of other staple foods. And the same happened the next year. The Western frontier, concluded Holland, was, quotes, a far more civilised, more peaceful and safer place than American society is today. So, look, it's been great having you with us today, Dan. Yes, yeah, lovely. It takes so much stress off us not having to do the accent. Thanks very much. It's been a lot of fun. We are American accents and not what they might have been. <laughs> Thanks. It's been great. Can we conclude that the Wild West was simply an invention, something just made up for commercial gain? Well, we've already said, as we often do, it's just not so simple. It's a much better story than that. There are, we discover, for example, a number of very odd things about the way the history of the Wild West has been written. And we'll find out more about those next time at the History Cafe. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod. Mm-hmm.